strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello, welcome to my study. Uh, come in, have a seat. Uh, allow me to introduce the uh, gentleman to my right, my valet Wilkinson. He's the one who uh, pulls all the books from these shelves and uh, will be reading any directly quoted passages tonight. Pleased to meet you. So, uh, Wilkinson, as this is our special Valentine's episode, I thought it would be a good occasion to give you a small gift themed to the season, if you don't mind opening it while we're recording. Ah, well, please, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I didn't expect you to get me anything. I assume you didn't. Oh. No, no. I'm the employer, after all. A bit of largesse on my part just seemed appropriate. Well, thank you. Of course. Go ahead and open it. It's not a valentine. Don't make it weird. More of a themed gift, not a valentine. It's just a token. I courtesy here have some scissors thank you I always think of wrapping as a big part of the gift giving there's another box I see uh, it's, it's rather small actually you you want the uh, scissors again? Please. Oh. Well, uh, why don't you describe it for the listeners? Uh, it's small, uh, not to diminish the value. No, of course. And, and it's tied on a red string. A small, rather delicate-looking... I don't know, it looks like a bit of a piece of dried jerky, I suppose? The tongue of a turtle dove. Oh, a tongue. Well, thank you. It's an ancient Roman love charm. I mean, not just Rome, mind you. They were employed all over Europe. In, in Germany, uh, one would slip it into one's palm under a glove. Then, with a mere handshake, one could enchant one's intended. You still have those gloves from Milan I gave you several Christmases ago? Yes, certainly. Not that I'd expect you to use it, actually. It's more of a curiosity, a, a conversation piece. A conversation starter, to be sure. No, neither you nor I believe in such things, and I'd hardly want to get involved in your personal affairs. It's not my role, and it would ultimately just be another frustration. No, you've never been one to pry. I'm still not sure you know my first name, actually. You start meddling in your employees' affairs. It's endless and sad. Well, I do appreciate it. Turtle doves are on some sort of EU red list. They can't be hunted, but uh, 
Cyprus refuses to sign on to all that. Uh, that's where it comes from. Cypriots are real fighters. Uh, I can return it if you don't no, like it. No, it's intriguing. Probably for the best with Cypriots. Uh, they they seemed sketchy and probably uh, wouldn't get my money back. I would just have to throw it away in the garbage. Again, thank you. So, uh, let's get going. Episode 20, The Undead Come Courting. So, I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and our show, Bone and Sickle, as you probably know, is about the uh, intertwining of horror and folklore, often with a little history thrown in. Uh, I started all this as a way to expand upon uh, material related to my book, the same one I plug every show, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Uh, Bone and Sickle is made possible through the generosity of our Patreon donors, and I'll have more details on all that at the end of the show. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, Ophelia sings this song during one of her mad scenes. Uh, it's verse about a lover showing up on the eve of St. Valentine's for a romantic rendezvous exemplifies, or was probably based on, uh, one of many traditional songs called Night Visit Ballads. However, as is more fitting to our... Uh, preferred themes, there is a subgenre of this category in which uh, these amorous night visitors happen to be undead. Our first example from the early 1600s, the ballad Fair Margaret and Sweet William. It begins with uh, Margaret jealously observing the wedding procession of William and another woman. She either dies of grief or commits suicide and then, in ghostly form, visits William in the night, demanding of William whom he loves more, his bride or herself. William wants to write off the experience as a dream, one of many nightmares plugging him in uh, this uh, gruesomely evocative verse. For I dreamed that my bower was full of red swine and my bride's bed full of blood. Unaware of Margaret's death, he visits her estate, only to find her lying in... in a cold black coffin with her face turned to the wall. And, as tends to happen in these songs, contact with the undead results in death. Three times he kissed her cold corpsey lips and fell into her arms asleep. Well, death, or more optimistically, uh, eternal union in the great beyond. Another example, the uh, Suffolk Miracle. It begins with the uh, daughter of a wealthy family uh, falling in love with a commoner. Her father, uh, eager to end the affair, sends her away, but her lover seeks her out, showing up on horseback one night outside her window. Overjoyed, she joins him for a nighttime ride, but... The man complains of a headache, which she 
pretends by wrapping her handkerchief about his head. It's uh, called a Holland handkerchief, by the way, as uh, that's where the better English cloth went for dyeing and finishing at the time. Soon thereafter, she returns to her father's estate, only to learn that her lover actually died of grief many months ago. She visits his burial site. And the next morning she exposed his grave. She found her true love full nine months dead with a hardened handkerchief around his head. Early listeners to this show may recognize a similarity between the Suffolk Miracle uh, and its uh, night riding uh, phantom lover. Uh, and a bit of poetry I discussed in the very first episode. It was the uh, German poet Gottfried August Berger's uh, 1773 poem Lenore, uh, one beloved by early Gothic authors both in Germany and England and actually mentioned by name and quoted in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. In Lenore, it's actually death disguised as the resurrected lover rather than simply the lover's ghost or revenant. Berger's poem, however, shares with uh, other ghostly night visit ballads the idea of a victim visited at night and destroyed by a supernatural spirit in the attractive guise of a lover, which uh, constitutes at least the bare bones of uh, the modern vampire. These ballads and poems lay a groundwork, but we don't quite have everything in place. Uh, where's the uh, blood drinking and uh, death by wooden stake, for instance? And, what about all the backward peasant superstition, which at first seems preposterous and then proves to be terribly true? Well, all of these elements enter the literary consciousness, initially not from Romania's Transylvania, but from the Balkan regions to the south, specifically Serbia. It's there in the 1720s and 30s a so-called vampire panic occurred, resulting in the exhumation of a number of suspected vampires, and all of which was dutifully reported by Austrian officers of the Habsburg monarchy. It was only when accounts of these events made it into the Viennese newspaper of the day and then to the rest of the continent and England that most of the elements of the modern vampire myth were in place. One of these vampires, Petar Blagojevich, uh, after his death in 1718 in the village of Kisiljavo, was uh, believed responsible for the sudden death of nine people from this village within eight days. Uh, he was accused of throttling some in their sleep and biting others and drinking their blood. Uh, eventually, villagers requested permission from the uh, local priest and Austrian administrators uh, to exhume Blagojevich's body. It was reported that the corpse was found incorrupt, with new growth of hair and nails and blood at its mouth. Staking the body was said to have caused more completely fresh blood to flow from the corpse's mouth as well as ears before the body was ultimately burned. A second, larger incident in the village of uh, Medveda involved the soldier-turned-vampire Arnold uh, Paola, and two waves of vampirism, the first in 1725 and uh, a second in 1731. 
After Paola's death from falling off a hay wagon in 1725, attacks were reported and it was remembered that Paola had spoken of an earlier encounter he'd had with a Turkish vampire on the Ottoman border. Paola's vampire was also said to have fed on cattle and thereby infect those who consumed the flesh and milk of these animals. His body was disinterred and reported to be in a state similar to that in which Blagojevich's corpse was found. The Austrian field surgeon Johannes Flückinger, in a 1732 report to the emperor occasioned by the second outbreak, wrote that uh, Paola was uh, disinterred in 1725, eyewitnesses observed, that fresh blood had flowed from his eyes, nose, mouth, and ears, that the shirt, the covering, and the coffin were completely bloody, that the old nails on his hands and feet, along with the skin, had fallen off, and that new ones had grown. And that the villagers drove a stake through his heart, according to their custom, whereby he gave an audible groan and bled copiously. This uh, second outbreak in uh, Medveda only involved uh, Paola inasmuch as it was uh, attributed to the uh, consumption of meat from animals Paola had attacked five years earlier. It resulted in uh, 17 deaths within a three-month period and in the exhumation of 13 suspected victims, seven of which were found by the examining surgeon uh, Flückinger to be in a state that convinced him of the veracity of the uh, villagers' claims. I'll have a bit more about vampires and their surprising legacy in Serbia at the end of the show. So as a result of these reports, the Serbian word vampire began uh, circulating on the continent and made its way to England so that by 1734, the word vampire was permanently ensconced in the Oxford English Dictionary. Now, the first literary use of the word occurred in 1748 in the German poem Der Vampir uh, by Heinrich August Ossenfelder, in which the narrator threatens, And as softly thou art sleeping, to thee I shall come creeping, and thy life's blood drain away. The poem addresses a pious woman um, threatening her with vampiric destruction if she clings to the Christian teachings of her upbringing rather than indulging in the passion he wishes to share. And so we have uh, blood drinking now added to the uh, traditional motif of the uh, supernatural romantic uh, night visit. it's uh, noteworthy how far this literary vampire persona has already moved from the uh, monstrous, uh, blood-bloated corpses uh, peasants were digging out of graves in the Balkans in the 1720s and 30s. Now, this uh, oddly rancorous little poem of vampiric seduction hardly made a big splash, but a German writer of far greater repute also turned his attention to our theme in the 1797 poem, The Bride of Corinth. And that author would be Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, uh, whom we also met in episode one. Like the uh, ghostly night visit ballads we began with, Goethe in this work portrays a nocturnal visit by a revenant lover that ends in union of the couple in death. Uh, But to this, without using the word vampire actually, he adds uh, the element of blood drinking and referred uh, to the piece in correspondences as his vampiric poem. 
The bride describes her situation. From my grave to wander I am forced, still to seek the gods' long-severed link, still to love the bridegroom I have lost, and the lifeblood of his heart to drink. The story has a young man arriving from Athens at the home of his uh, fiancée in Corinth late in the evening. A dinner is provided for him in his chamber by servants, but he is otherwise left alone. Unable to eat, he is falling into a half-sleep when his door opens and there appears a maiden veiled in white. It is his beloved, but she will not eat the dinner he invites her to share. She will only drink red wine. There is a weird voluptuousness to her presence. She is as cold as ice, though white as snow. And though she speaks of love, no heart is beating in her breast. Goethe has given us here another doomed romance. After the couple's engagement, the woman's family, it turns out, had converted to Christianity and could no longer allow their daughter to marry her pagan suitor, who is unaware that she had been exiled to a convent where she died. Soon after the cock's crow, the mother enters, regarding with horror this figure resembling her dead daughter, who stands up and abrades the woman, asking, Was it not enough that you sent me to an early grave? The poem ends with the vampire suggesting the couple can or should or will only be united in the flames of a funeral pyre. Now, as it turns out, Goethe had based his poem on a classical tale of the ghost of Philidion recorded in a couple of sources, one being the second century Book of Marvels by Phlegon, something told as a true story, just as the uh, Suffolk miracle was. Though uh, Phlegon relates his tale as occurring during the reign of uh, Alexander the Great's father, Goethe moved his poem into the early Christian era, so there would be no religious conflict uh, between the lovers in uh, Phlegon's original yarn. In fact, the young man, Makatis, who is uh, visited by the ghost, does not even know Philinian, but he's nonetheless happy to spend the night with this uh, amorous creature when she shows up in his bedchamber for three consecutive nights. When the vampire daughter is confronted by the mother, she falls dead again and is quickly burned to prevent further abominations. In one version of the tale, the lovesick young man then kills himself. Though there's no specific reference to blood-sucking, um, I've mentioned in our Ancient Necromancers episode uh, how the dead of ancient Greece demanded sacrifices of blood as sustenance. So something destructive is certainly afoot, leading to Makati's death and the immediate burning of Philinian's body, and that something may well include a bit of uh, blood-drinking. Only four years after Goethe's Bride of Corinth, another vampire made an appearance in the uh, 1801 epic poem by Robert Southey, Thalaba the Destroyer. It's a sort of uh, Arabian Orientalist fantasy telling the story of Thalaba, whose family is uh, destroyed by a cabal of sorcerers and who must combat them with the aid of um, magic rings and such. Uh, the orphan Thalaba is adopted and guided through his adventures by Moath, whose daughter Oneza he wishes to marry. Unfortunately, she dies on the wedding day and is transformed into a vampire. And o'er the chamber of the tomb there spread a lurid gleam. Oneza stood before them. It was she. 
Her very lineament, such as death, had changed them. Livid cheeks and lips of blue. But in her eyes there dwelt brightness more terrible than all the loathsomeness of death. Moath recognizes the figure as a vampire corpse and demands that Thalaba thrust his lance. It fell. <laughs> and howling with the wound, its demon tenant fled. The poem is uh, glutted with bits of mythology and superstitions and folklore Southie uh, was interested in sharing, and we'll look at some of his uh, voluminous uh, footnotes on vampire folklore shortly. Southie, by the way, was a respected member of a literary uh, circle including uh, Coleridge and Wordsworth, as well as being England's poet laureate for three decades. Unfortunately, he is now primarily remembered as the author of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Goldilocks went to play. She went to play in the woods one day. The gods send the plague to punish men for harboring the Vorvalica. Vorvalica? What's that? Some old peasant superstition. An elemental wolf spirit. Some such thing in human form. We're hearing a bit of the 1945 film Isle of the Dead, starring Boris Karloff, one uh, written and produced by Val Luton, who was known for his uh, subtle, moody horror films uh, throughout the 1940s. The Vorvalikas mentioned in the clip are folkloric beings discussed in Robert Southey's footnotes to Thalaba and are sometimes understood as werewolves, uh, sometimes as vampires. Luton keeps things nicely evocative and vague at that level, creating an uh, undefined sense of menace with gloomily photographed scenes set on this uh, Greek island during the 1912 Balkan War and with uh, Karloff as a brooding general. The concern about these uh, Vorvalikas uh, starts with uh, the troops burying their dead and Karloff discovering that the crypt of his own wife has been looted. The uh, fear of plague possibly spread by grave robbers, possibly by uh, dark spirits, uh, overtakes the island. This scene in which Karloff and his men hear a voice amid the supposedly empty crypts might give you a sense of the film's eerie atmosphere and why Martin Scorsese included Isle of the Dead on his list of 11 most effective horror films. Evil things that I know and that you know and Thea knows. Things that so this term, Vorvalica, comes from a Slavic word borrowed into Greek from Bulgarian. Uh, in its original usage, it would describe a werewolf, but appears to have taken on a meaning closer to vampire. Uh, throughout the Balkans, the two concepts are rather intertwined. Um, a werewolf might be said to become a vampire after death, or elsewhere, vampires might be obliged to spend some time in wolf form, for instance. Um, intermingled as they might be, the word vampire clearly won out in Western Europe and America, which is a bit strange, as we've seen and will see in more examples, uh, that much of the uh, 
material inspiring early uh, literary treatments of vampires was connected to Greece. One explanation that's been suggested is the Western attitude towards classical Greece as the cradle of civilization and rational thought, which did not jibe well with these uh, superstitious tales. Southey provides a good example of this attitude in his footnotes to Thalava, including a rather snarky account of a case of vampirism on the island of Mykonos by the French botanist Joseph de Tournefort's 1741 book, A Voyage into the Levant. The account begins shortly after a particularly quarrelsome peasant has been murdered. Two days after his being buried in the chapel in the town, it was noised about that he was seen to walk in the night with great haste, that he tumbled about people's goods, put out their lamps, gripped them behind, and a thousand other monkey tricks. As a measure of first resort, a special mass is set over the uh, body of the presumed Forvalica. After mass, they took up the body and got everything ready for pulling out its heart. The butcher of the town, an old clumsy fellow, first opens the belly instead of the breast. He groped a long while among the entrails, but could not find what he was looking for. At last, somebody told him he should cut up the diaphragm. The heart was then pulled out to the admiration of all the spectators. In the meantime, the corpse stunk so abominably that they were obliged to burn frankincense. But the smoke mixing with the exhalations from the carcass increased the stink and began to muddle the poor people's heads. Even this did not slow the vampire down. He goes on to be accused of beating folks in the night, breaking down doors and even rooftops of houses, clattering windows, tearing clothes, emptying bottles and vessels. It was an epidemical disease of the brain, as dangerous and infectious as the madness of dogs. Whole families quitted their houses and brought their tent beds from the farthest parts of town into the public place, there to spend the night. They were every instant complaining of some new insult. Nothing was to be heard but sighs and groans at the approach of night. The better sort of people retired into the country. Liberal dowsings of holy water and further religious processions do little to alleviate the panic, and eventually the body is burned on the beach. Whether that put an end to the matter is not certain, as the narrative ends there, and Tournefort uh, seems to have moved on in his travels. A uh, fondness for a uh, rather idealized Greece lay behind the uh, next literary appearance of the vampire motif. It's by Lord Byron, who actually took up arms uh, in the Greek cause in the uh, War of Independence against the Ottoman Turks. It's his uh, 1813 epic poem, the Giaur, uh, from a Turkish word for infidel. Unsurprisingly, given uh, Byron's uh, allegiances, its unnamed hero is a Christian Greek pitted against the Turk Hassan, who uh, has murdered a slave girl the hero hopes to avenge. Before he is killed, Hassan curses Byron's hero. But first on earth, as vampire sent, thy corpse shall from its tomb be rent, then ghostly haunt thy native place, and suck the blood of all thy race. Therefrom thy daughter, sister, 
wife at midnight drained the stream of life. The poem was hugely popular, encouraging Byron to write uh, three more Orientalist poems or Turkish tales, and uh, uh, Delacroix painted his famous The Combat of the uh, Gaur and Hassan based on the poem. And the poem also influenced Poe's early work, uh, particularly his poem Tamerlane. By highlighting the same thing we already saw in the Night Visit Ballads, this preying on one's own loved ones, uh, Byron uh, elevates the vampire into a more tragic or complex character, not some sleepwalking beast preying on cattle in the Serbian backwoods, but something more fitting of the romantic or certainly the uh, gothic uh, tastes. Mary Shelley's monster, in a way, uh, in stalking his uh, metaphorical father, the doctor who created him, uh, also works with this theme. And Shelley even has Victor Frankenstein invoking this sort of Byronic vampire and describing uh, the creature's murder of Victor's brother, William. Victor has... Endowed with a will and power to effect purposes of horror, such as the deed which he had now done, nearly in the light of my own vampire, my own spirit let loose from the grave, and forced to destroy all that was dear to me. And there, ladies and gentlemen, on the other side of the lake, we have the famous villa Diodati, where Lord Byron, greatest living English poet, resides in exile. Naturally, all of this brings us to the incidents described in Ken Russell's uh, 1986 film, Gothic, which I mentioned in our last episode. Um, That is, the summer nights, or single night, as Russell would have it, uh, during which uh, Percy Shelley and his bride-to-be Mary Byron and his uh, private physician, John Polidori, immerse themselves in a volume of recently translated German ghost stories, a shared experience that produced two foundational works of Gothic fiction, Frankenstein and Polidori's The Vampire. Now, uh, the vampire happens to be a sort of stepchild to the uh, Gower. Uh, Byron had written a piece expanding upon the vampiric references in the poem uh, Something Rough, referred to only as Fragment of a Novel, which uh, Polidori spun out into The Vampire in 1819. The book's undead Lord Ruthven is uh, often mentioned as a model for Stoker's uh, Dracula. His Transylvanian count may have inherited Ruthven's uh, pale countenance and hypnotic eyes, aristocratic presence, uh, and general seductive nature. Uh, and much of this is said to be drawn from Polidori's impressions of Byron himself. Accompanying uh, Lord Ruthven through the story is the Englishman Aubrey, whom Ruthven has met as a fellow newcomer uh, to London social circles. The two decide to travel together to Rome, where Ruthven seduces a particularly innocent woman of Aubrey's uh, distant acquaintance. A disgusted Aubrey parts ways with uh, Ruthven, or at least attempts to, and proceeds to Greece, where he falls in love with the lovely Ianthe, who shares with him some local vampire lore before turning up dead with ghastly wounds to her throat, uh, a tragedy which locals believe to be the work of a vampire. Aubrey is beset by a series of nightmares featuring vampires and a menacing Ruthven. The two later meet up again on their travels, but are set upon by bandits, and Ruthven is seriously injured. On his deathbed, he begs Aubrey not to breathe a word of the attack to anyone. When Aubrey returns to London, he is shocked to encounter 
a strangely recuperated Ruthven, who quickly begins seducing Aubrey's sister. An engagement is announced, and uh, at this point I'll uh, leave off to avoid totally spoiling the story, should any listeners uh, want to read it. Polidori's Vampire was remarkably successful, spawning immediate spin-offs. The following year, a novel-length uh, elaboration of the story appeared, along with two uh, stage plays, one in Paris and one in London, and even a German opera, Heinrich Marschner's Der Vampire, which uh, itself was transformed uh, into a 1992 BBC miniseries, The Vampire, a soap opera, one with operatic uh, music. This is Black Sabbath. Starring the incomparable Boris Karloff, the personable Mark Damon, and lush and lovely women, even though one is from the netherworld, a vampire, a Vordalac. You've just heard a bit of the trailer for the 1963 horror anthology Black Sabbath directed by Mario Bava, uh, the same director who only three years earlier had given us the beautifully gothic Black Sunday. Um, so with Black Sabbath, we're concerned with only the second of the three segments, though the third is worth watching and the first is worth skipping. A Vordelac. A Vordelac. A Vordelac. Anyway, the uh, Vordelac mentioned in the clip, as you might guess, is etymologically related to the Greek Gravalica. Uh, the uh, segment in the film is titled I Vordelach, and it's from the 1839 novella by Tolstoy, The Family of the Vordelach. Now, uh, Vordelach is not the usual term for vampire used in Russia, but Tolstoy borrowed it from Pushkin, who had introduced it with a footnote defining it as a vampire, not werewolf, by the way, in his poem, The Vordelach, uh, which is published five years before Tolstoy's story. Uh, Pushkin's poem happened to be inspired by stories of the uh, southern Slavs in Serbia. And Serbia also happens to be the country in which Tolstoy set his tale. But that's not your child out there. It's a murder like... I don't care. I don't care. Let me go. It begins with a traveling French diplomat staying in the home of an old peasant named Gorcha, the figure played by Karloff in the film. Gorcha has returned under strange circumstances after a 10-day outing hunting an outlaw in country believed to be swarming with vampires. There are fears that the uh, family patriarch himself may have been infected with vampirism. Bordelac. Vampire. Bordelac. Vampire. And the mysterious death of one of Gorch's uh, sons reinforces the suspicion of the diplomat. And meanwhile, the diplomat is finding himself attracted to Gorch's daughter. I'll stop there. Uh, sort of spoilers, as the story and film might both be of interest, but as suggested by the uh, title, Family of the Vordelac, uh, this uh, story also reinforces that theme we've been seeing, that is uh, vampires preying on loved ones. In any case, Tolstoy's Vodolok gets us back to Serbia, which is where I wanted to end this episode.
That's the sound of a vampire attack in uh, Lepiritsa, a uh, 1973 Yugoslavian TV production, which in its time and place must have been very effective as it's been reported that a viewer died of fright during its initial broadcast. I can't promise the same results for you, but the film does quite vividly transport you to an older world, the one that gave birth to these legends. Not so much through high-end film artistry, as you might have guessed, but by virtue of having been filmed in the extremely rural Serbian village of uh, Zorosha, uh, home to the legendary vampire Sava Savonovic. By the way, I'll link uh, on our site to the film on YouTube. No subtitles, but some may find it worthwhile at least to skip through. It's an interesting little oddity with a strong sense of place, as I've suggested. Uh, Sava Savonovic uh, is the best-known vampire in Serbia, far more so than the uh, cases I quoted earlier, thanks to an 1881 book by Milovan Glicic called uh, After 90 Years. The story, which was uh, only translated into English in 2015, is based on uh, old local folklore of a vampire that haunted a particular mill and preyed upon millers coming there to grind their grain. The story begins with a young man in love with a woman whose father won't allow a marriage until he proves himself. The suitor undertakes to do so by lying in wait for the vampire he hopes to slay, something he hopes to accomplish using a gun packed with silver coins and iron. The ambush doesn't quite come off as expected, and the vampire escapes after complaining that he was almost fooled and remarking that he's only uh, vulnerable to such uh, errors every 90 years, uh, hence the title. The vampire Sava, by the way, is described as having a face as red as blood and is always depicted carrying across his shoulders a linen shroud that dropped down his back all the way to his heels. Without a shroud, as is explained in footnotes to the English translation, the Serbian vampire loses all his powers. After the suitor's unsuccessful attempt to shoot Sava, villagers decide the creature must be staked in his coffin, using, as per the tradition, a horse to locate the long-forgotten grave. And at this point, uh, the book and film diverge, and in the interest of not spoiling endings, I won't go further other than to explain the title of the film, which means Moth, uh, which is a creature whose uh, form the Serbian vampire can assume when needed. Now, the mill near Zaroisha, which uh, the vampire was said to frequent, is an actual mill that was operational into the 1950s. After its closure, it remained a local curiosity, but fell into disrepair, allegedly because the new owners feared undertaking any repairs that might disturb the vampire. And then, in 2012, the building collapsed, and the little town made international news. Unlike the Twilight series suggests, residents of a Serbian village are finding there's nothing really sexy or romantic about a vampire. In a bizarre public health warning, Mayor of Zorohe, Miodrag Bujetic, announced the real and serious threat of a vampire on the loose. The structure eventually rotted and recently collapsed, leaving the vampire homeless and, according to locals, angry and in search of a new home and new blood. New blood. Residents aren't taking the warning lightly by any means. Bujetic told ABC Vampire News, on the Loose. We're all taking precautions by having vampire. holy crosses and icons placed above the Vampire House on the Loose. Blood. Vampire. Vampires exist. Borderline. 
rubbing her hands Vampire with garlic on the having a hawthorn steak or thorn. Vampires exist. Vampire on the loose. Vampires exist. Vampires exist. Vavalika, what's that? I do hope everyone's been enjoying our shows and that you uh, may have the opportunity to uh, share episodes you've been listening to with friends. Uh, we particularly appreciate reviews. If you've uh, left a review, by all means, let me know and I'll give a little shout out on the show. I think I may even get some other little uh, sort of gifty incentive going uh, for this as uh, it's uh, reviews that are the best way to raise our show's visibility on Apple Podcasts and other distributors. Our website, Bone and Sickle, provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter, along with uh, show notes replete with images and video links to uh, the sort of film trailers, uh, clips, and music used in the program. Uh, music and sound design, otherwise, are all original for the show. You can also find our donor link on the site. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including uh, exclusive access to uh, extra elements that uh, go into the making of the podcast, uh, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, um, the uh, soundscapes you hear in the background under my voice, and my uh, Krampus book, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing and adulation. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and uh, your support via Patreon is the sole support that makes possible me continuing to regularly make uh, available this rather labor-intensive production. A special thanks to uh, uh, new patrons, and I hope I'm getting these names correct, Gaminet, uh, Torre Halsa, uh, Kimimas, Julie Hamilton, and to Robert Espy for upping his uh, pledge level. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>